Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this wonderful sunshine and warmer temperature you have given us today. We thank you for this place that we can come and worship freely at. Lord, we think of our brothers and sisters around the world who don't have that privilege, who don't have that blessing and that freedom. Lord, we pray that you would be close to them now as they also worship along with us on this Lord's Day. Lord, strengthen them. Give them the courage and power and strength that they need. Lord, we thank you that what sustains them is not only your Holy Spirit, but your word. Every word that is uttered by the mouth of God. And Lord, I pray that that same sustenance and that same anchor and that same power would be true for us. That we would find that and only that in the word of God. That the word of God would be our authority and our source of strength and power. Lord, I pray that you bless our time this morning uh, as we continue through this uh, somewhat difficult section of 1 Corinthians. But Lord, we know that you want us to hear it. You want us to take it to heart. You want it to change our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, the Huffington Post published an article that recounted stories of gifts given to people that inspired further giving. One story was about a, ni- was about a nine-year-old boy in, who lived in, in Fresno, California, named Atticus Seng, who had his bike stolen two different times over the course of a month. The second theft was so seemingly unlucky that the story was picked up by a local, a local news station. After seeing the news story, students at Fresno High School decided to raise money for a new bike for Atticus. They went from classroom to classroom, eventually uh, raising uh, $360 in donations, bought a new mountain bike, and went to Atticus's elementary school uh, to present him with this new gift. So inspired by the Fresno High School students, Atticus's parents wanted to pay it forward and donated that same amount to a nonprofit that provides bikes for kids who wouldn't otherwise have, have one to get to school in other places. Because of the Seng's donation, three more kids received new bikes and helmets through this nonprofit. Through the Fresno High School students' generosity, one little boy's family was inspired to give a certain nonprofit that may not have, they, they may not have otherwise given to and help three more kids get the bikes and helmets that they needed. But imagine if Atticus, when he got the bike, he said, ah just not in the mood to ride this thing. I don't have the time for this anymore. Imagine if Atticus didn't appreciate the gift. He wouldn't have used it, and he didn't care about it. That certainly wouldn't make any sense, but the students would have walked away demoralized, and his parents would have been too discouraged by by Atticus's reaction that they probably wouldn't have donated what they did in turn. But because Atticus was so appreciative and his family so inspired by others' kindness, that one gift grew into three more gifts. And there is a gift that God created that has been misunderstood, it's been abused, and it's not been used the way that he intended it to be used, and that's God's gift of sex for marriage. 
We'll see how some in the Corinthian church misunderstood it and misapplied it. We'll see Paul's instruction and teaching on it. And we'll see how God has always meant for this gift to grow and therefore what that means to us as believers in Jesus today. So the first point that we come to in our, in our passage this morning is the misapplication. And if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's where we're continuing on today. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn there so we can all see this together. It's in the New Testament. You can keep flipping forward or you can look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. Uh, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 1. And we read, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. We just read that for our scripture reading. Like we've discussed when it comes to New Testament letters and the disadvantages we have as people reading them thousands of years from when they were written, this is like the illustration of someone being in the same room as someone else who's talking to another person on the phone. We can get one side of that conversation and from the context of the other things said in that conversation, we can reasonably piece together what is being said. However, the disadvantage is that we don't know how long those two people have known each other. We don't know what the background is. We don't know what has been said about a certain topic already between the two. The same is true for this subject in 1 Corinthians. Well, Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. What is that? What is he referring to there? He's obviously referring to another letter that the Corinthian church must have written to Paul regarding questions they had when it came to marriage and sex within marriage. Paul has just finished up his rebuke against sexual immorality and why it's so important to stay away from it. And now he turns to what could be coined sexual morality or marriage morality. That is instruction to the church regarding sex within the binds of marriage. From what, what he answers here in this section of our passage this morning, we can reasonably conclude what the questions were that the Corinthians had for Paul. According to, one Bibli uh, according to biblical scholarship, verse 1 by itself can be wildly and destructively taken out of context. And you can see why when you read that. If you simply read verse 1 without fully understanding everything that comes after it, what does it seem that Paul is saying? Exactly what a cursory reading would seem to say. That ideally, a man in any context, outside of marriage, and even when it, within marriage, should not be sexually intimate with his wife. That's what that term, touch, refers to. Within this context, the phrase touch a woman was most likely a euphemism for sexual relations. If you take that verse at its cursory reading, think about it. It would be a huge contradiction to what the rest of the Bible says and what Paul himself writes elsewhere, wouldn't it be? Thanks, Ron. Getting a bunch of blank stares from the rest of you. All right. You could then throw the entire book of Song of Solomon in the Old Testament about the joys of sexual intimacy within marriage straight out the window, if that was the case. Instead, within the direct context of what Paul says next in verse 2, the second half of verse 1 is most likely Paul rebuking another Corinthian culture bumper sticker slogan. 
That may sound familiar to you. Just like we covered in chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, the Corinthian church, uh, culture and church spouted off the phrases, all things are lawful or permissible, and food is for the stomach, and stomach is for the food, to excuse away their engagement in sexual immorality. And that's what Paul rebukes in that chapter. Paul then spent those verses pointing out the absurdity of those phrases when it came to their real faith in Jesus and how his death and resurrection should drive them to see how they viewed their physical bodies and what they did with them. Similarly, this section of chapter 7 is Paul pointing out the absurdity of the Corinthian phrase of, it is good not to touch a woman. So this verse should really look more like this. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. See, you don't see that uh, in the Greek. You don't get those quotation marks. But within the context, you, you can get a, a better understanding of that. We see Paul's personal view on the appreciation of the single and therefore celibate life in verse 7. But even there, he also appreciates the gift of marriage if that's what God gives to two people. We read, But I wish everyone were single just as I am, yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. However, apparently some in the Corinthian church had taken Paul's personal view on celibacy for the kingdom of God and had misapplied it to their marriages. Celibacy is a term meant to describe a commitment to abstaining from engaging in sexual relationships. We know from the rest of our series in 1 Corinthians so far that the Corinthian church was very good at taking previous instruction from Paul and misapplying it to different situations, right? They've been very good at that. So here, apparently some in the Corinthian church had taken what Paul may have even told them before that he then reiterates in verses 32 and 33 and misapplied it to their marriages where he says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. Within its correct context, which is what Paul places it in, in these verses, in verses 32 and 33, Paul is not depreciating the importance of marriage in people's lives, but rather elevating the appreciation for single and celibate lives devoted to serving the kingdom of God. Do you see that within the direct context? See, the prevailing Jewish belief was that it was a sin to remain single and celibate, referencing God's blessing on the first marriage to be fruitful and multiply, all the way back in Genesis. So they took that and said, well, it's a sin to be anything but married. So Paul elevates singleness and celibacy to a pedestal right next to marriage as equally pleasing to God. We'll get into this further when we get more and more into chapter 7. But for now, we need to see that Paul wants to be clear to the Corinthians that he is not advocating celibacy within a marriage relationship. Do you see what, and understand what Paul's point and goal is here in the first part of chapter 7 so far? Everybody with me so far? Okay. So, we talked about the misapplication, what the Corinthian church had done with 
Paul's previous instruction, how they misapplied his instruction on celibacy to their marriages. Next, we get into the marriage instruction. Paul further corrects the Corinthians' misapplication of celibacy to their marriages by explaining the importance of sexual relations within a marriage. We begin to see that in verse 2. Read along with me. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. While Paul will belittle the prevailing Jewish belief that single celibacy was sinful, and that it can be an honorable calling to focus on promoting and building the kingdom of God, here he's affirming the prevailing Jewish belief of the importance of marriage. Pragmatically, as he clearly notes here in verse 2 and then reiterates in verse 9, marriage is the best deterrent for falling into sexual immorality. Since the context of this is sexual relations within marriage, this is clear biblical evidence that any sexual relations outside of marriage is defined as immorality. It's also clear New Testament evidence for God's blueprint for marriage in Genesis, that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Furthermore, it's also clear New Testament evidence for the equality not of God-created roles, but of the worth of both the man and the woman in a marriage. Do you see all of that in that verse there? Verse 2 and following are not belittling the purpose for sexual relations within marriage simply as a means to not go looking for it elsewhere because within the context of what we've been talking about for the past month and a half, that of sexual immorality, Paul is simply giving one purpose for getting married. Not all the reasons, one reason for getting married, a pragmatic one, as a safeguard and a worthy pursuit against falling into that sexual immorality that we just spent a month and a half covering. It's not the only purpose, as Paul will write elsewhere and as we see throughout the entire Bible, it's just one pragmatic purpose. And since that's one pragmatic reason for marriage as the only God-pleasing outlet for human sexual expression and therefore a safeguard against engaging in sexual immorality, it makes no sense for the married couples in the Corinthian church to be abstaining from it. That's what Paul is getting at in verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Well, that makes the act of sexual relations between a husband and wife sounds like, sound like an unenjoyable, stark, regimental duty, doesn't it? Just do it because you have to, because that's what the Bible says. Again, within this context, Paul is not giving the only purpose for sexual relations in a marriage, but simply one pragmatic reason. For a husband and wife to find fulfillment in each other and not fall into the sexual immorality he's just spent two entire chapters on. He explains that clearly in verse 5. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is specifically connected to the Corinthians' misapplication of Paul's emphasis on celibacy and laying it on top of the marriage relationship. Paul says, listen, 
It's okay for you to take an element of celibacy that is undistracted and devoted service to the kingdom of God, but only for a temporary time and only for that specific reason. That specific reason was so that a husband and wife could temporarily devote themselves to undistracted prayer. It had to be temporary or else that one of the pragmatic reasons for marriage as a safeguard against sexual immorality would be completely pointless, right? We see that in Paul's warning against a husband and wife not fulfilling each other, being a perfect opportunity for someone else to get in between them and strip away that safeguard against sexual immorality. We read that at the end of that verse. So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul doesn't pull any punches, does he? He's straight up with what he's talking about. He's straight up and he's honest. He knows, just as we know, how we are as humans. Especially when it comes to sex, we as humans have very little self-control. Let's just be honest. We have so little self-control because sex is such an incredibly powerful drive, and that's because it was created to be that way to make a husband and wife one in every possible way. Once you strip one of the pragmatic safeguards from a marriage, it's very, very easy for the enemy of our souls and of that marriage to get in and cause destruction. So, married people, if you take the flip side of that, one of the greatest protections for your marriage, and one of the greatest ways for your marriage to grow is to do what? Have sex. Become one with your spouse as much as you can. You didn't think you'd hear that from the pulpit this morning, did you? Paul confirms this in verse 6. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Paul says, don't misconstrue what I just said in verse 5. Or, or verse, yes, verse 5. What I just said in verse 5 is not a command for you to follow regularly. Ideally, you would not abstain from sex with each other for any amount of time, but if you really feel the leading of the Holy Spirit to temporarily abstain from it for a set and certain period of time, for a spiritual devotion to praying instead, I'll give you this one concession. That's what he means in verse 6. I'll give you this one concession. It's not a command for you to do this regularly. Then, make sure you pick up where you left off after that set time is over. So we talked about the misapplication. We talked about the actual instruction for people within a marriage. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the mentality. This is the reason the mentality married people should have when it comes to thinking of the other spouse. Verse 4, we're coming back to that now. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This connects back to what I noted about in verse 2. That the wife has as much worth in the marriage as the husband and vice versa. That Paul was chauvinistic and gave chauvinistic teaching is a woeful misunderstanding of key passages, including this one. The wife 
has as much of a right to be fulfilled by her husband as the husband has by the wife. This verse also connects Paul's whole reasoning and mentality of why he instructs the Corinthians with everything he's been instructing them with here. The wife does not have the authority to deprive her husband of loving fulfillment because she does not have the authority over her own body. And the husband does not have the authority to deprive his wife of loving fulfillment because he does not have the authority over his own body. Whose authority is it ultimately? As a whole, sure. Jesus's, right? And then he gives it to the other spouse. He gives that authority to each spouse. Now, I want to be very clear about this. This does not condone physical and sexual abuse within a marriage. Not at all. Because it just affirmed the worth of both the husband and the wife in the marriage. If you are in a physical or sexually abusive marriage, talk to someone. If you are in physical danger, you need to get to a safe place. I want to be very clear about that. That is not what the Bible is teaching or condoning. What this does directly connect with is what we talked about last week. That the impossibly high price that Jesus' death and resurrection paid for in his blood even extends to his authority over our physical bodies in the area of our sexuality. That authority is what, God, is what gave Paul the apostolic authority and the guidance of Jesus' Holy Spirit to write the commandments and instruction we just read. Just as our bodies are no longer ours, but Jesus's, when it comes to our fleeing from sexual immorality, our bodies are no longer ours when it comes to a husband and wife fulfilling each other as much as possible. Why? Jesus's authority over this area of our lives as redeemed ones bought with his blood directly connects to what the entire Bible, of which the Apostle John says Jesus is the embodiment, says about marriage and sex. God created marriage and sex in Genesis to be a blueprint not only for his standards for marriage and sex, but also as an illustration of Jesus' relationship to the church. He says exactly this in his letter to the Ephesians. And he says, for this, this is a direct quote from Genesis 2. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a direct quote from the blueprint of marriage in Genesis. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now this same may seem weird to us, but the extreme selflessness, love, and respect that Jesus showed to the church when he willingly paid the price needed to redeem us at whatever cost and suffered humiliating torture, unspeakable pain, and excruciating emotional torment when the one person he could always count on had to turn his back away from him is the same extreme selflessness, love, and respect at whatever cost a husband and wife must have for each other and as expressed in their sexual relationship. Some have pain connected to their pasts with this. Have the peace of knowing that just as with every area of our lives, Jesus can 
and will redeem your painful past. There can and will be healing in every way as the Holy Spirit heals and works in you. Besides the theological reason in Ephesians 5, since God created this powerful force called sex for marriage and marriage only, let me ask you this. Shouldn't married couples enjoy it as much as they can as a blessing and gift from God? And even see it as a means of glorifying and praising God for using the gift He's created specifically for marriage? If you're married and you need some further biblical inspiration and instruction on this, read through the Old Testament book of Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Somewhat not. Married brothers and sisters, develop and grow your sexual relationship with your spouse. Marriage is often seen by the world to be where sexual relationships go to die. You've heard that before. But that is not the way that God sees it, nor what he created it to be. Break away from that cultural phrase, just as Paul was calling the Corinthians to break away from their cultural mantras. Just like the other gifts God gives to us as his children, this gift should be enjoyed as much as possible for all it's worth. Don't starve it like Paul was rebuking the Corinthians for doing. God gave it as a gift to be enjoyed, nurtured, and grown. Be purposeful and intentional about that. If it doesn't ever seem like it's the right time, or you have enough energy, or both of you are in the right mood, do something about it. Make time. Do what you need to do to have enough energy. Make it the right mood. Sometimes you have to be intentional about it, for it's one of the most important parts of your marriage. If it's not treated as how importantly God wants us to treat it, we open ourselves up to exactly what Paul warned about in verse 5. The enemy coming in and messing around with things. Those of you who have been married for many years find encouragement in Proverbs 5.18. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. One writer said about this, It does not say rejoice in your young wife, does it? No. It says rejoice in the wife of your youth. That girl you married when you both were younger. Wives, you can also apply it to your husbands. Rejoice in the husband of your youth, that young man you married when you both were younger. It's never too late to go back to the joy and celebration of your union and physically recapture that joy. I want to encourage us by closing with this verse that sums up the gift. I don't want to hear anybody closing their Bibles yet. Don't be distracted. Pay attention to this last part. Closing with this verse that sums up the gift of God's creation of marriage and sex in Ecclesiastes 9.9. And this goes both ways. Enjoy life with a woman or man whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which he has given to you under the sun. Why? For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Enjoy it. Enjoy the gift for all it's worth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words in, in your 
scripture for us today. I pray that the married couples here would take it to heart. That if there's something that needs to be changed, something that needs to be worked on, something that needs to be progressed, something that needs to be grown, I pray that they would do that. I pray that you would both fill them with your Holy Spirit to have the courage to do what needs to be done for it's so important and you treat it so importantly. We thank you for this gift of making a husband and wife one in every way. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.